I've been on this journey of intimacy for about six years now. And um, yeah, come on up, Shannon. The image that the dancers just showed you and is very much what I feel like God has been pressing on my heart and trying to teach me. If I'm six, if I'm six years into my journey of really trying to learn how to be intimate with God, then uh, what I'm going to share with you today is my lesson from first grade. So that's okay. Oh, yeah. This is my uh, first grade my first grade lesson that Jesus is trying to teach me. And uh, it's good. It's a good, good journey. And when I shared with you guys last time, thank you, uh, I... They're laughing at me. Okay. I ran my head into the cross. Oh. Well, that's a good thing to run your head into. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. <laughs> it's all good. Okay. When I shared with you guys, um, actually one of the last series that I was able to speak with you is on the secret place, the whole series of how to get there and what to do when you get there and how to stay there. Um, and at the end of that series, there was one more thing that was just really coming into my heart that I wanted to share with you, but it wasn't time yet then. And it's the, the, the teaching that I want to share with you today is something that God's been really pressing deeper into my heart. And it's been such a good journey. And the last time I spoke with you was during the fighter series and I spoke on David. And it was just sort of funny how um, when we talk about the biblical heroes and who was going to speak on which one, how... David was the one for me, and I knew exactly what I wanted to talk about, is David's continued journey of intimacy with God. There aren't a whole lot of characters that we can look at that didn't just have a good moment with God, even a good moment or two with God, but really had a lifetime with God. We don't, a lot of the biblical heroes didn't end well. Not many of them did. But, but David was one who really did walk with God all of his days. And... Uh, and I've, I just was so excited to sit inside this and be able to bring it, bring it to you all today because for my journey with intimacy, when it very first started, the Lord was courting me. And I've said this many years with, to girls that I spoke to across the nation. I'd always tell them that God flirts. And uh, they would all kind of look at me weird. And I was like, no, he really does. And if you hang around him long enough, he's going to flirt with you. He's going to try and court you. He's going to compel you. He's going to try and arouse you. And that is what the Spirit of God does. He's like, come to me. I want you. I love you. And in every romantic connotation you can think of, it's true. He thought of it. He is the great romancer. And so there was a courtship period for me where God was really beckoning me to be in his presence and to stay with him. So first he had to convince me that I really did want to stay with him. But once that, that process took place, it's like, okay, I'll try this out. I'll try hanging out with you. And then there was this process of learning that he satisfied me more than anything else. And that took a period of time to me go, wow, you really are better than chocolate chip cookies. I mean, they're good. But God, you're better. You're better than some of my favorite movies. You're, you're better than some of my, my, my uh, idiosyncrasies or addictions or things that I might run to instead of you. You're better. You really are better. I have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. So not only do I kind of want, I kind of do want to hang out with you and you're yummy. Like it's good. This isn't, this isn't bad. This isn't torturous. This is really enjoyable. This is delicious. I actually prefer it. And so it's been six years of getting to the point where I can honestly give that testimony. I do prefer to be in the presence of God. Now I'm in the six-year-old six year uh, lesson. My first grade lesson is learning how to stay. Learning how to stay. 
And this picture came to me. I'm not good at drawing. And, and those of you who know me well, you know that. I stink at it. I'm the scribbler. That's all I know how to do. I even prayed about trying to make this little circle thing. And I was over there. So I really do stink at it. But this is the picture. I just see pictures. I'm a visual person. And uh, when the Lord was teaching me about staying, this picture came in my mind. And it was like, Jesus is the cross right there in the middle. That's about as complex as I get. That represents him. And he's there. And he was showing me how the circumstances of my life were sort of like those old dial phones. You know, back in the day where you would actually put your finger in and dial it? Like, they, they just changed. He was showing me that circumstances will always spin around me. Always. They're always changing. But he always remains faithful and the same. And even though my life may look different today than it did yesterday, and even more different than it will look tomorrow, even this moment from what I'll encounter at 1 o'clock this afternoon or 3 o'clock or 7 o'clock tonight, those circumstances are going to spin around me. And what was happening in my life, or is happening in my life, is that I find myself kind of living like, whoa, 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 whoa. And then by bedtime, I am so done. Because I was yanked and tugged and pulled and pushed, and now I'm up, and now I'm down, and now I'm sad, and now I'm scared, and now I'm mad, and now I'm hurt, and now I'm, I'm yanked. Oh, my life is just yanking me instead of Jesus just holding me. And circumstances just spin, but I stay because he stays. And he doesn't ever get worried. He doesn't ever get afraid. He never gets bent out of shape. He gets angry. But even in his anger, he has this ability to remain in such control. Amazing, the presence of God. So he's been trying to teach me how to not just, not to just know he's good and not to just want to stay, but learn to stay, to anchor down in the presence of God. And David really gave some great practice in teaching at that with the testimony of his life. And last time I spoke with you, it was the scene of David and Goliath. And uh, if this could be one of the days of David's life, one of the circumstances is that one day he woke up and he faced a giant. And I shared with you the title of the teaching I gave last time was The Secret Place Goes Public. And that when David wandered on to the battlefield to meet Goliath, the secret place who he knew well, the God that he loved and the God that he worshiped walked with him right to that battlefield. They did it together. And my favorite line, my favorite scene from that teaching was when Goliath threatens David. He's gonna offer him to the birds of the air and David looks at Goliath and says, oh, right, you're coming against me with sword and spear and javelin. I get it, those things that you're holding, but I'm coming against you in the name of the Lord God Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel. Israel, whom you have defied. I know you thought you were going to fight me, but you're really fighting him. And that is the beautiful story of the secret place goes public. It's like giants don't worry you when you remember who's holding you, you know, and the giant's going to have to encounter him. That was an amazing day in David's life. Amazing. I mean, most of us will never have a day like that day must have been in David's life where he literally cut the head off of a giant. And I had to end the story with you all last time before I finished it. Hopefully you read it for yourselves. But later in the text, it says that David was brought before Saul and he was still holding Goliath's head. <laughs> I just love that. I don't know why, but this boy's, I mean, it had to be huge. Like 
better the size of him. And he's just walking around holding it. And I can see his brothers being like, hey, I want to hold it. And he's like, no, it's my head. I got it today. You go get your own head. <laughs> and he's brought into the presence of God and he's still holding his head. And he, he, gets, he gets all this honor and all this celebration and something other beautiful thing happened. Saul's oldest son, Jonathan, became his best friend that day. It said he became one in spirit. His heart just went to David. Something magical happened there. So Jonathan expresses his devotion and his love for David. And that's not all. They're heading back into the town and all the ladies start singing a song as David's entering back into Jerusalem after this great battle, this great victory. The women are singing, Saul has killed his thousands and David is tens of thousands. And they're singing all these songs in celebration. And I don't know what a day like that must have been, but it had to be something that would have made it to your journal that night. You'll never believe what happened today. Oh, the songs that they were singing and all the honor and all the glory and all the friendship. Well, Psalms 18, the next chapter, it begins where I want to begin today. I love, and and you, you know me well, you'll hear me say this a lot. Whenever the Bible gives you a detail, you better pay attention because we don't get many of them. A lot of times the Holy Spirit just kind of sweeps over these generalities and broad statements. But when you get something like the first three words of Psalms 18.10, it makes me stop. The next day. Have you ever had the next day? Yesterday. I wish we could. I love the way Zeke says it. Yesterday. (laughs) Yesterday. Yesterday was wonderful. I was worshipped and honored and everyone was giving me all this glory and praise. The next day. The next day, you wake up. And the picture that we get in Psalms 18 is that David is back playing the harp in front of Saul. No more big fierce battles, no more celebration and honor. He's back playing the harp. And so the next circumstance that David encountered was ordinary. And I have found it to be true that Christians, people who want to follow Christ and have done so for a while, we have these mountaintops where it's awesome. We have valleys where our attention is given more to Christ. But then there's those ordinary days. And I have found the ordinary to be quite a challenge for Christ followers to remain intimately passionate with Christ on an ordinary day when you're just playing the harp. But with David's life, unlike our life, ordinary didn't visit him for very long. It might have been like about 30 minutes. Um, Because in the midst of the harp playing for the king, an evil spirit from God forcefully came upon Saul. You can unpack that with God. I, I don't want to explain all that to you because I can't. But anyway, an evil spirit from God came forcefully upon Saul and he was prophesying in the house and Saul is filled with jealousy and hate towards David. The scriptures tell us that he turned a jealous eye onto David when those ladies started singing that song about David is tens of thousands and Saul is thousands. And he said, what more could he take from me? He's got the love of my son. He's winning the hearts of the kingdom. What more can he take from me but the throne itself? And David had already been anointed king secretly. So he begins to turn a jealous eye and makes a critical mistake. Although Saul's eyes had really never been on God, Saul fixed his eyes on David and he feared David instead of fearing God. And he grabbed a spear and he threw it at David while he was playing the harp and David was able to dodge. Two times, Saul tried to kill David in his presence the next day. One day it's a giant and the next day you're dodging spears. And that day in 1 Samuel 18 literally began the first day 
of the rest of David's life. David would be a man who would be intimately acquainted with fear. He understood what it was to be hunted. And so when the circumstances spun around David, all of a sudden, he found himself in facing very real fear. These were not imagined fears. This was, no, the spear is right beside my ear fears. I didn't mean to make a little rhyme out of that, but that is exactly what it was. And for that point on, for the rest of the book of 1 Samuel, we're going to see a lot of list of words. And they're all verbs like this. David left. David went. David fled. David escaped. David left. David stayed in a desert stronghold. And that is the rest of 1 Samuel, is the story of David escaping with his life from Saul. Do you know where David went? He stayed in desert strongholds. He hid in caves, in rocks, behind rocks and mountains. Very rarely was he ever able to stay in a city for very long because the word would get out back to Jerusalem and King Saul would hear the city that David had stayed in and he would march against the city. David had to stay in the lonely places and he lived in rocks. And one of my favorite scriptures in this study is 1 Samuel 23, 23, where Saul sends out to his army, he says, go find out about all the hiding places he uses and come back and tell me. And when I read it, I just giggled out loud because I was like, Saul severely underestimated the hiding place that David was using. And the hiding place that David had chosen is written about in what I call his prayer journal. Because if 1 and 2 Samuel gives you the facts of the story, Psalms gives you the feeling and the heart of the story. It's just like Psalms is you got to, to pull open David's prayer journal and open it up. And if you don't see it, you probably, I, I couldn't pick, it was hard to pick the scripture that I wanted to show, uh, choose for you all today because there's so many references that are just the same. But this is Psalms 18. The Lord is my rock. My fortress and my deliverer, my God is my rock. Saul, you want to come and find where I'm hiding? You want to know about all my hiding places? Well, meet God. You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord God Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied. I hide myself in the rock. Later in the story in the scriptures in Samuel, it says that God would not allow Saul to find David. He hid him. He is the rock. David learned how to confront fear. The other thing that was very difficult while he lived out in the wilderness was he, he encountered a lot of confusion. What do I do now? Where do I go? And not only was it about him, but there were several hundred people that ran to David during that time of hiding and said, hide me too. I want to escape from Saul too. I want to be with you. You're a good king. You're a good shepherd. I want to hide with you. And he had great responsibility, about 600 people at least, that were hiding with him in the rocks. And he had such a shepherd's heart. And there were moments that were very difficult. One where the Philistines were raiding a nearing town. And I just love this principle. David had this habit of not assuming what he was supposed to do, but he would do this. He would sit with his friend and say, all right, God, should I go or should I stay? It's called inquiring of the Lord. He never assumed. He didn't march out in his own strength, but he would consult the rock and say, should I go war against them? And then I love the other question he would often ask, not only should I go, but will I win? 
I always want to know that too. Is this going to go all right? Like, I'll put it out there. But I love that David asked because not always when we're called to go, are we also called to win? But he would ask, am I, am I, not only am I going to go, but am I going to win? And he would sit and God would give him the word. God would faithfully say to him, yes, go or no, don't go or stay or turn left here or get down. He would give him intimate instruction because David had the habit when he faced confusion, he didn't get to his own strength. He would run to the rock and he would inquire the Lord and he would say, how do I handle this? And there's a picture of this in Psalms 143, running back to his prayer journal, evidence of this man who sought after God. He said, let the morning bring me word of your unfailing love, for I have put my trust in you. Show me the way I should go, for to you I lift up my soul. Rescue me from my enemies, O Lord, for I hide myself in you. Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. May your good spirit lead me on level ground. And literally, these are not poetic words. When he's saying, lead me on level ground, do you know this man was living in rocks and mountains and caves and he was leading 600 people? Can you imagine having that type of a decision? Do I go over this mountain pass or do I go through that one? Because my enemy is literally on the other side of the mountain. Tell me which way I should go. And God intimately gave David the knowledge and the correction and the wisdom and he hid him and all those people for all the years that he was there because David would stop and inquire of the Lord and seek his wisdom. The other thing that moves me so much about David that we see while he was in the wilderness is the incredible honor that he held for God's authority. Most many uh, men or women leaders that I have seen have really struggled with power. It's one of the reasons why I really love the Lord of the Rings movie because I think it's a great allegory on power and how seductive it can be. When someone receives power, how the temptation is to white knuckle it and say it's mine. David had already been anointed king. He was just waiting for the crown to come to his head. But while he waited, he lived in horrible circumstances and he waited two times while he was in the mountains waiting Saul came so close to him. One story that I find absolutely hilarious, uh, and if I had more time, we could really bring it out, but it's 1 Samuel 24. Saul is on one of his many pursuits to find David, and he's going out and searching for him. And go to the next screen. And while he's out there, he needs to go potty. It's right there in the scriptures. It's not me. It's the true story. And, you know, they don't have porta-potties, and you don't have, like, a little... Uh, RV or something, traveling for the king. So he had to go find some place to relieve himself, so the scripture says. And so he goes and he finds a cave. So he wanders into the cave, and how, who else happens to be in the cave? David and all of his men. And here comes Saul, needing to go potty, which is a very vulnerable thing to do. And you're a little bit uh, out of sorts, and he probably didn't bring a whole entourage of people with him because he just needed to go relieve himself. So he's probably alone. And David and all of his men are sitting there going, this is unbelievable. Here he is. And not only is he in front of me, not only is he alone, but he's very vulnerable and weak right now. And so all of his men start whispering in his ear saying, go get him. God has delivered your enemy into your hands. Go and take him out. David goes close to Saul, and he only cuts a little piece off of his robe, which I think is a, a funny picture anyway. So he cuts the piece off of the robe, but he said, I will not raise my hand against God's anointed. I will not do it. God has crowned him king. 
I won't raise my hand against God's anointed, even though God's anointed has raised his hand against me. Until God wants that crown on my head, I will wait. I will not raise my hand. That is incredible picture of how to face power with Christ. It doesn't belong to me. God can give it and God can take it away. Then he gets conscience stricken that he even cut a tiny piece of robe off of Saul's robe. And, he, and he, he's real sorry. I can't believe I even did that. He had such honor for that robe, such honor for that position. He goes out to King Saul holding that little piece of robe. And he's like, why are you chasing me? I am not your enemy. God just delivered you into my hands and I did not raise my hand against you. When are you going to believe? I am not chasing you. I am not after you. This is something you're fighting against God. And Saul, and Saul weeps and cries and says, My son David, you are more righteous than I am. And he had a moment where he had clarity. But then Saul didn't remain there. And he continued the pursuit of David the rest of his life. And David remained in the caves. Amazing story. The end of Saul's life is tragic. He and Jonathan and his sons die in the battle with the Philistines. And the word has come. There's a whole story with that, but you're going to have to read it for yourself. But the moment comes when the crown is taken out to the desert. And David can see the guy coming, running, the messenger running. The next day, life has changed. And it's time. It's time. You've been anointed king for many years. You're no longer a boy and it's time to stop living in caves and put the crown on your head and ride into the city. And David receives the crown and he begins his escort into Jerusalem. And uh, it's as if David says, I'm not going in by myself. If I'm finally and at last welcomed back into Jerusalem, then I'm bringing God with me. And I don't know if you remember in Jason's teaching last week, but the ark of God had not been in Jerusalem for many years. It had been exiled as part of the punishment to the Israelites for not listening to God. And it had been hanging out at this guy's house. And David says, if I'm coming back, he's coming back too. And it literally was going and getting God because God remained, in, his presence lived in the Ark of the Covenant. That's, it's hard for us to imagine that, but it really was the presence of God in this box, this golden box. So David says, come on, everybody, we're going to go get God. And the priests all come and they, they get it all figured out and they build a big cart and they put the Ark of the Covenant on it and they start pushing it into the city of Jerusalem. And they go across a threshing floor and the Ark begins to wobble and looks like it's going to fall to the ground. And a man reaches his arms out to steady the Ark and the power of God, the holiness of God comes out and strikes the man and he dies on the spot because he dared to touch the glory of God. And let me tell you what, everyone was freaked out, David most of all. What are you doing? I'm trying to bring you back into the city. And God needed to have his holiness honored. You can't just bring me any way you want to. And I don't want to be pushed on a cart. There is a way that I prescribed that my holiness is to be handled and you better adhere to the rules. So even though there was an intimacy with God, there was this incredible respect and this incredible authority to his holiness. And we don't get the, what happened in between, but we see in First Chronicles that David figured it out 
And he um, aligned himself with the way God wanted to be brought back into the city. And the next scene you see is the Levitical priests are all robed up and they put rods into the loopholes on the side of the Ark of the Covenant and they hoisted it up on their shoulders. God wanted to be carried on the backs of men. He didn't want to be pushed on a cart. There's a lot of symbolism there. God wants us to bear his glory. It's, it's such a mystery, but he wants us to bear his glory. And this time, as they approached the city of Jerusalem, the men that were carrying the ark would only take six steps and stop, and then they would sacrifice a bull in honor of God, and then they would take six more steps and stop and sacrifice a bull, and then take six more steps. Can you imagine how long this journey took? This glory was coming back into Israel, and David was so excited because this is his friend. This is the rock. And the glory of God is not loud in some house. It's coming back into the city. And he disrobes. He takes off all of his kingly garments. Why? Because David never had a problem knowing who was king of kings and who was lord of lords. So he takes off all that outer adornment and he's just next to naked. And he, dr- he dances like a wild man before the presence of God. He's so excited. My friend, my God is coming back into the city. And he celebrates. And you've got to remember, Jerusalem didn't have a temple at this time. They didn't have a tabernacle. Moses' tabernacle is gone. So the Ark of Covenant had nowhere to go. So David builds a tent. He builds a tent for the ark of God to come and sit in, and he puts priests in front of the ark of God all the time, doing all their duties so that God was regularly served. He had company. God had company. So not only are you coming back into the city and I'm building you a tent, but I'm going to put people in there to worship you and praise you because you're so worthy of it, and I don't want my friend to be alone. I want him to be honored and worshiped and said David was satisfied when this was all taking place, and he goes home. He had such honor for the Lord. And Psalms 84, one um, through two, gives you such a great picture. This is, again, a glimpse of his prayer journal. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord Almighty. My soul yearns and even thanks for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. And in verse 10, very famous scripture, better is one day in your court than a thousand elsewhere. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of the wicked. David loved the presence of God. He loved inquiring of him and sitting with him and hiding with him. And now he didn't have to do it anymore in a rock. Now he could do it in the beautiful city of Jerusalem while he was wearing the crown on his head and, and God could be honored in the tent. And this process, this relationship, while David's king, this continued all through his days when the Philistines would march up against the Israelites in uh, 1 Chronicles 4. As soon as they find out David's king, they hate him. They remember this little boy who killed Goliath, and they immediately want to march out against him and destroy him. And back to fear we go. And he goes right back into inquiring of the Lord, how should I handle this? Should I go up against them and will I win? And God gives him victory. In 1 Chronicles 18, 6, we're told that the Lord gave David victory wherever he went. These two, they had been battling together for a long time. They they were old war partners. I come against you, or you come against me with sword, spear, and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord God Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied. And God showed himself to be great 
over and over and over again because of David's relationship to him. At one point in David's kingship, he was confronted once again with power. When his son Absalom grew up and became a very charismatic young man, the scriptures say that Absalom had no defect on his body anywhere. From the top of his head to the tip of his toe, he was without blemish. He had an amazing personality, beautiful to look at, and he had a heart very different than his father's. And Absalom began to lust after the throne. And while his father was still sitting on it, Absalom began to devise a way that he could take the throne out from beneath his own father. And what he would do is sit up on the stairs, stand up on the stairs of the um, palace as people would be coming to get their court, their decisions made by the certain judges. And Absalom would say, oh no, don't go talk to them. Come talk to me. I'll solve your problem for you. I'll help you with your case. And he was so charismatic that he won the hearts of many, many, many people. And over a period of time, he began to sway their hearts that he should be king instead of David. And they set up this process to go ahead and crown him as king while David was still reigning. And the word comes to David that Absalom has set up his own throne and the hearts of Jerusalem are for him. They're ready to follow him. David does what I believe to be one of the most miraculous things in leadership. He takes his power and he holds it with an open hand. Instead of white-knuckling it and saying, no, it's mine, and how dare he, he gets off of his throne, he takes off his shoes, he covers his head, he goes outside and gets on a donkey and begins to ride out of the city. And all, who lo- all those who loved him follow him and they're all weeping and crying as they leave the city. Those who were attending the Ark of the Covenant in the tent know all that's taking place and they go and they get the Ark and they're saying, David's leaving and God is too. And they take the Ark and they're following David out of the city. And David does such a beautiful thing. He goes to the priest and he says, no, God stays. God is not exiled. I am. God belongs, his glory belongs in Jerusalem. And he says, if God wills it, he will allow me to once again gaze upon his beauty. But if it isn't his will, I will not take that throne until he gives it back. I long for that kind of leadership who will acknowledge the king of kings. So God stays and David goes back into the caves, back into exile, back into mourning. And the story is unfolded. Absalom is overthrown and David is indeed led back into this city. And he sits back on the throne for the rest of his life. David was intimate with God and he did all of life with God. And I know that you're waiting for this big word here, sin. When sin was the circumstance And I wanted to end with this. Um, Because in my mind, as I've studied this over the years, just as David was an example in how to deal with giants and ordinary days and fear and confusion and power, David was also an example of how we deal with sin. The, The story is that his flesh failed him. 
And no matter how close he was to God, he allowed himself to be tempted, and none of us are above it. No matter how big we think we are or how much we know God, he walked right into temptation. He should have been off at war, but he stayed back, and he was on the roof of his city, and he saw a beautiful woman bathing, and he fell. He had adu- committed adultery with her and had her husband murdered. Big sins, huge ones, great big giant ones. And that's not the story to me because we've all been there, not done that. Maybe that's not the name of my sin, but I get sin. I understand it. I understand temptation. The story to me is how David responded. When Nathan came into his presence, when the prophet came to him and helped him to understand that he had sinned against God, he had one thing to say. I have sinned against the Lord. I have sinned against the Lord. There's no defense. No, but you don't understand. No, I am the man. You are right in what you say. I have sinned against the Lord. And he repented and he ran back into the presence of the God that he loved. So many times when we sin, that's not our story. We cement ourselves into this hole that we've made and think he doesn't want to have anything to do with us anymore. Or we excuse our behavior as if it's not sin and we justify it. We come up with all kinds of gimmicks not to run back into the presence of God. But David led the way. He led the way back into the heart of the one that he loved. And you know how God, what God did? He received him graciously and he forgave him. He forgave him and he cleansed him from his sins. Psalms 51, one through two, famous passage, and we're familiar with it. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. God did this for David. He was gracious to him. And later in the story, you will hear David say, I would rather be thrown into the hands of God than thrown into the hands of men. Why? Because I know God and I know him to be good. I know him to be just. And though David did bear a severe punishment, he lost the child. The first child of this woman died because of a punishment from his sin. He was punished for it, but he did not run away from God's presence. The second time we see sin is when David counted the army. And I don't understand all of that, but his flesh failed again. And he gave in to pride and he counted the army But he was conscience stricken after he had counted. And he said, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. Now, Lord, I beg you, take away the guilt of your servant. I have done a very foolish thing. The story isn't that he sinned. The story is that he repented. And if I hear the Lord saying anything to us today as a church, it's come back. Come back. I'm here. I remain. I hold you. And though the circumstances of your life spin... And one of them, or many of them, may be circumstances of sin. Come to me. Repent. Name it. Own it. Don't dodge it. It is what it is. And I am who I am. And I am good. And I will heal you and raise you up and forgive you. And this week, as I was preparing and praying for you guys on a... One morning particularly, I was in the car for a long time and driving and praying... I was praying for this day, and I just got these strong images in my mind that I felt very compelled to show you. And it was the Lord was saying, David came to me with lots of different postures. Sometimes he danced, sometimes he crawled, sometimes he marched, sometimes he bowed. He came so many different ways depending on the circumstance. The circumstances would spin and he would come to me. 
And I was meditating on those and wanting to show them to you, and I am going to show them to you. But then the Lord really blew my mind, and he's like, Sherry, you focus so much of your life trying to assume the right posture in my presence. And it's good, and it's right, and I should do those things. But he's like, I wish you could see the postures that I assume over you. I wish you could see me and the role that I play and the role that I play with you, the role that I played with David. And so I asked Jazz to come up. And to help me show you what I feel like God was showing me about how he wants to interact with us and the intimacy that he desires no matter what the circumstances is. So one of the most famous scenes we have is David dancing before the Lord. But I wonder what God was doing while David was dancing. So as David came in and he's celebrating before the Lord and he's saying, oh, I love you so much. I love you so much. And I want to celebrate. God and David are giving high fives and they're celebrating. (laughs) And he's hugging him. He's like, oh, I love you so much. And God's like, I love you too so much. And I just want to be with you and let's do this together. Thanks for celebrating with me and I'll celebrate with you. And then there were the days when David was called out to battle And David was marching, trying to be really brave and facing his enemy, but I wish he could have seen God. He was walking in front of him and he was clearing the way. So by the time David got there, there was just nothing to fight anymore because God's so big. He's like, I wish you could see me going in front of you. I'm opening the way so it's safe. So little old me can come down and face giants. And then there was the day when David was so afraid He literally had to hide. And I felt like God was saying, I wish you could see me. How I cover you, how I I hide you, how I won't allow anybody to find you or to hurt you. And you stay behind me. And then there was the moment when David's flesh failed him and he defied God and he stood in his face. And I was like, I was like, I wish you could see what I was doing. David by my sweet spirit I I bring you to humility and allow you to experience failure so that you'll cry out to me and I wish you could see how I pulled David back into my presence because I wanted him so much that I brought him back into intimacy with me so whatever the circumstance is that's battering you pushing you back and forth, tossing you about. Jesus is just saying, come, I've got you. Let me hide you. Let me clear the way. Let me celebrate. Let me rejoice over you. Whatever it is, just let me do life with you. Because I died to earn the right for you to just come and let me love you. And I think the prayer that since I've been intimate with the Lord these last six years, there have been moments where I really feel like he lets me feel his heart. And it's overwhelming. And I, my prayer has become, God, I want, I want you to get everything that's in your heart. And that's you. He just wants you so much. So whatever the circumstance is, we go into this time of worship and communion. I just want you to let him have you. And if you need to crawl, then crawl. If you need to march, if you need to bow, if you need to dance, today was the best day ever or the worst or somewhere in between, it doesn't matter. Just come and let him do it with you. That's all he wants. 
So I'll let the Lord just minister to your heart now, however you're led. The communion is available anytime you want it.